0: It's the beginning of a new Supreme Court term and one that will run the gamut of polarizing issues, gay and transgender rights, abortion, gun control, and DACA, with decisions that will affect millions of Americans coming during the run-up to next year's election. Joining me is former United States Solicitor General Gregory Garr, a partner at Latham and & Watkins and global chair of the firm's Supreme Court and Appellate Practice the court is obviously going to consider a lot of controversial issues. Is there one that stands out in your mind?
1: I think what's unique about this term, at least compared to the last couple of years, is just how many hot-button issues it's put on its plate. I mean, it seems as though it tried to lay low the last couple of terms to the extent possible, and now it's got a whole menu of issues ranging from abortion, guns, religion, DACA, gay rights. And so it's, it's hard to single one out. I think what's unique is just the, the bevy of controversial issues before it.
0: Let's start then with gay rights, which is going to be heard tomorrow. Justice Kennedy was the pivotal vote in all the court's gay rights decisions. So does this put the spotlight on Justice Brett Kavanaugh?
1: I think you know, certainly it's significant, and that'll be the first time that we hear from Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. In this area, I mean, particularly given Justice Kennedy's retirement, I do think that these cases are different than the gay marriage cases and the like that were decided several years ago, and that these are really going to be focused on the text of the statute in some sense are statutory interpretation cases, albeit ones that have a obviously crucial impact on a particular segment.
0: And do you have an opinion as to which side has a better case of statutory interpretation?
1: I I don't, at least uh, not one here today. I think what I would say what's really interesting about this case, though, is that you know, both sides have approached it from an interpretation perspective and have relied on various aspects of Justice Scalia's methodology and are claiming to, you know, take the, the throne of statutory interpretation. So I think it's a testament to how statutory interpretation has changed over the last couple of decades, and it's interesting to see both sides coming in with a Scalia-type approach to the issue.
0: As if the court didn't have enough controversial cases on its docket, last Friday they added an abortion case.
1: Right, and this is this is one that, interestingly, that the court had issued a stay in from the lower court's decision, staying the effect of the underlying Louisiana law, which which involves admittance privileges to local hospitals and is sort of a follow-on to the whole women's health case that the court decided by a 5-3 vote a few years ago with Justice Kennedy still in the court.
0: So Chief Justice Roberts dissented in the Texas case. Does that put him in the position here of overturning precedent?
1: Well, I mean, I think it's a different case today than it was at the time of Whole Women's Health and that we now have the Whole Women's Health decision, which is entitled to full, starry, decisive effect. So I think, you know, the chief justice will have to view the case through that lens. And obviously, the uh, state is arguing that the Texas law is different in some respects, and the challenges are arguing that it's just like the Texas law, if not worse, in some respects. And that's the sort of thing that the justices are going to have to work through in deciding the applicability of the whole women's health decision.
0: Of course, abortion is an area that draws more protests and more concern than a lot of other areas, certainly for women. Are you of the opinion, as some legal scholars are, that the court is not going to make any wholesale changes, that they're going to sort of go inch by inch if they're going to change abortion rights?
1: Well, I think, you know, this case is, is very much narrowly focused on the same issue that was decided in Whole Women's Health and in terms of the a particular type of state law requiring doctors to have admittance privileges at local hospitals. So, it, you know, it's hard to see the court going broader than that in terms of the specific issues presented, and certainly no side has uh, suggested that this case involves a challenge to Roe versus Wade itself. So I think in terms of the, the scope of this decision, all eyes will be upon it, and obviously it be our first sign indication from the, the current court as to where they are in these issues, but I think there's only so far that the court could go here.
0: When the chief makes speeches or does Q&As, he often goes out of his way to emphasize that the court is not political. He did this last month in a speech in New York. Will he be able to maintain that with the kinds of cases that the court is going to be deciding this term, the kind of issues that divide the country?
1: Oh, sure. And I think, you know, that's a real challenge for the court. I think all the justices are sensitive to that, and I think they all would agree with the chief justice that they don't see themselves as coming from one party or the other, but as judges involved in a common endeavor. And I think, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if we see some unusual lineup among these cases, but, you know, as to how it all sorts out and whether or not there's a consistent 5-4 majority in these cases, you know, that remains to be seen, but it's, it's certainly something that the court will be sensitive to.
0: Let's turn to DACA, President Trump's attempt to end President Obama's Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program. Does the administration start with an advantage here because it has many ways it can win the case, many different arguments?
1: does, generally speaking. You know, I I think certainly, as the court indicated a a few terms ago involving the the travel ban case, you know, where the president is acting in the field of immigration, he starts with a lot of inherent authority, which, which is helpful here. You know, on the other hand, you know, this case ultimately involves an APA challenge. And, you know, as we saw last term in the census case, the president, you know, can lose those challenges. So, you know, from the challenges perspective, I'm sure there'll be trying to take a page out of the playbook of that case.
0: You brought up the census case, and, and that's the case where the chief didn't believe the government's explanation and was the fifth vote against the government. Could that happen here?
1: Well, it's certainly possible. I mean, I I think, you know, you would look at the chief as one of the justices you'd want to focus on during oral argument. But, uh, you know, I think he would be looking at the the justifications that the administration gave here, you know, focusing on them in particular, not necessarily feeling bound by anything in the census case or the particular justifications at issue there.
0: So now, the court hasn't heard a Second Amendment case in about a decade. It had an opportunity to drop the case over New York City's strict limits on where licensed handguns could be taken because New York loosened the restrictions. But it's going to keep it on the docket. Another hot-button issue during election time
1: I mean, that's definitely true. It's another big issue on the plate. I mean, the court has not gotten back involved in the area of the Second Amendment for almost a decade. And a number of issues have been piling up in the lower courts. And I think it's been inevitable that sooner or later, the court was going to have to get back involved here to provide some guidance. And you know here it is in the New York case that they decided to do that. Now, New York had filed a suggestion of mootness on the ground that they had changed the law at issue. The court ultimately declined to Cancel the argument on that basis, but it did something that it not infrequently does, which is to refer the motion and the question of mootness to the oral argument itself and directed the parties to be prepared to address that issue at oral argument. So it's still possible that the case would go away on that ground. It just means we're going to have an argument in November to flesh things out a bit more.
0: Well, we might also be having other arguments. The Democrats' demand for documents and testimony from the President and the White House are winding their way through the courts. We saw there was a decision in New York and then put on hold by the Second Circuit today. So impeachment is on the horizon as well. Can the court avoid getting involved in these issues or is it going to have to take up these issues?
1: I think you probably would like to avoid getting involved in those issues to the extent possible, but, you know, you can't always control the the circumstances that are bringing the cases to the court. And that's true with respect to a number of these issues in terms of how they come up and in what context. And here, I think, you know, it'll matter a lot who is asking the court to get involved, the nature of the underlying ruling. I think it's going to be harder for the court to turn down or crest by the solicitor general himself, if we were to come to that. But, uh, You know, I think it remains to be seen how the lower courts sort these issues out and whether or not the Supreme Court's intervention is going to be necessary or possible this year.
0: I often count how many seconds it takes before a lawyer is interrupted in an oral argument with a question. And now the court says it's going to give lawyers two minutes uninterrupted. It says the justices generally will not question lawyers for the first two minutes of their arguments. So does this give you comfort when you're going to be uh, doing oral arguments?
1: Well, I think it's one of the biggest developments in Supreme Court law arguments that we've we've seen in a long time, and I think practitioners are excited to see how it plays out. You know, as a lawyer, it tells you up front about how much time you're going to have, and gives you an opportunity to try to frame the issues before the court. And I think all that is is uh, terrific. But I think you know, at the same time, the real argument doesn't start until the questions start flying, and I think you know that's where the rubber hits the road, and that's that's not going to change at all under the New rule as things play forward.
0: Has it become more of a hot bench in recent years?
1: Well, I think without doubt. I think it is the most active court in history, in terms of the number of of questions during a oral argument it 's not surprising to have seventy questions and interruptions during the course of a thirty minute oral argument and the the justices are all eager to have their own questions asked and so are, are jumping in more more quickly during the course of oral argument and so you know I think this this two minute rule you know hits a bit of the pause a pause button at the beginning of oral arguments. But, you know, the meat of the oral argument is still going to consist of the back and forth, which is, you know, extremely important in getting to the bottom of these difficult issues.
0: Thanks so much, Greg. That's Gregory Garr, former U.S. Solicitor General and a partner at Latham & Watkins. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. I'm June Grosso, this is Bloomberg.